it really was trauma and suffering that brought me to the practice. And like Indra's net that Diana talked about, may this trauma that I went through and the learning I went through, may this benefit each of you and all beings. I think our trauma stories are here to heal each other. The other day I took a class and one of the readings was by Clarissa Pinkola Estes. And this, I think her little quotation really fits well with this theme of trauma as a gift of healing. And here she talks about the wild self, but really it's the deeper diving into our spiritual self. So she says this, The doors to the wild self are few but precious. If you have a deep scar, that is a door. If you have an old, old story, that is a door. If you love the sky and the water so much you can almost not bear it, that is a door. If you yearn for a deeper life, a full life, a sane life, that is a door. So be willing to embrace whatever your doors are, scars, stories, your love of the water, and walk into that saner life. So there have been four themes in my practice history that I will touch on today, and they do have a kind of progression, but they interweave throughout. So the first is trauma as the path to awakening. The second is just keep going, don't give up. The third is what you are seeking is seeking you. And the fourth is just one quiet presence, not two. So I wanted to give you a metaphor if you don't remember anything from this talk. A metaphor that really is about finding those quieter spaces inside. And I think about you starting on the Dharma. It was like I was on an eight-lane highway outside of New York. You know, just noisy, lots of cars, lots of stories, trauma, this and that. And then gradually through the Dharma, you start, you take, maybe you go off that eight-lane freeway and you go onto a lesser freeway, right? Smaller. And then over time, you exit that freeway and go onto a, a lesser-known road, a country road maybe to Yellow Springs. <laughs> and then eventually, you get off that country road and you might even go onto a one-lane dirt road. And then in the end, you park your car in a cornfield and you just get out and walk. No more road. Just quiet. So that's our journey in the Dharma, away from our stories away from all our views and opinions, away from everything we think we hold so dear. We're walking that large highway. We're leaving that highway to quieter and quieter roads. Where in the end, we're even letting go of that story of separate self. That's a noisy road. We're quieting the distress of the past, quieting the seeker, the craving part, and things just settle until you're just out in that dirt road or you're standing in the cornfield or you're in the pine trees in the glen. And the beauty of this practice is eventually the pine trees of the glen are inside of you. The deep blue ocean that I love to swim in, it's inside. So you're not even looking at it out there anymore. It comes, the quiet comes inside. That's the great gift of our practice. And Ajashanti, my teacher, he calls it the end of your world. 
that eight lane freeway outside of New York, that that's your world and that ends and that noise gets left behind. So when I was a kid, um, we had an empty lot across the street from my house and because it was an empty lot, it, it was actually a grassy lot and the grass grew up in the summer and it grew really tall and brown and no one cut it. So I loved to go across the street and just sit in the grass. Nobody could see me. And the grass was really tall and brown and the sun was really blue in the summer, even in the Midwest. And that was my meditation field. To me, it felt like a field. It was just a little lot, but you know, when you're little, everything feels really big. So I would just sit there for hours and that was my most secure place in the world. And like the Buddha, the Buddha's first meditation experience was out in the field when his dad, you know, some of his dad's helpers were cutting grass and he was just sitting there. And then the day of his night of his enlightenment, he remembered that 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 meditation was that simple. Just a little kid sitting in a field. So that's sort of how I started. But then, you know, we get to part one, trauma as the path, or dukkha as my teacher, dukkha suffering. So you backtrack and you take that little kid in the field, and then you walk her across the street to where my house was. And then you enter that house. And in that house, there was physical violence, and there was neglect and suicide. And there was hitting, and there was intentional cruelty and brutality. There was humiliation, there was chaos, there was disconnect. And when you're a child, you try to swim through that pain the best you can. There's not always the field in the middle of winter to go sit in. And I remember as a kid in my neighborhood, they had this thing called the Blue Star House. And the Blue Star Houses were houses that put these blue stars in their window. And if you were walking home from school as a kid and you felt unsafe, you could go knock on the door of those houses and they would help you. And of course, my house was not a blue star house that I lived in. But I remember looking at those houses and thinking, well, I don't feel safe in my home. Can I go up to one of those blue star houses and knock on the door and say, could you stop my dad from hitting us? Could you stop my mom from going to the mental hospital? But... I knew I couldn't use those blue star houses for that, but I remember thinking that would be nice, you know, just to go up and have that safe house. But through the practice, I learned to make myself a safe house. The Dharma and retreat centers became a wonderful safe house. I remember when I first came to the Dharma, I was so happy because I always had this fear I'd be a bag lady. And I remember I was like, oh, I can go anywhere in the world and they'll feed me and take care of me. <laughs> I'll never be homeless as long as I've got the Buddhist community. It was such a relief to my system to know that. Because you know, when you don't have a very connected family, you worry about things like that. And when Buddhism became my family, it was a huge quiet in my system to know that really you can't go anywhere in the world and there's some center like Yellow Springs. They'll put you up for two weeks and <laughs> stay upstairs like I did. <laughs> um, so despite the pain and chaos in my house, I had a really deep yearning to know what moved people's hearts and what was God and all of that. 
I still had that really deep challenging, but at age 12, um, my mom tried to jump out a window in downtown Chicago, 42nd floor, and they took her away for a long time. Uh, I, I discovered bulimia and I made that my religion, and that became my best friend. And in a strange sort of way, you know, to talk about addiction and bulimia, bulimia was a place where time could stop when you binge, when you purge. It's almost like it's slow motion and time stops. And there was a union and a calm in that. But then, of course, there's addiction and wanting to keep that calm, and you have to feed the tiger, and it gets worse and worse. But it was a, it was a solace for me in a strange sort of way and something I could control. So that addiction followed me for 14 years. And I did TM practice in there, but it wasn't until when I completely stopped my addictive practice of bulimia that year I found Buddhism. I don't know if that was a coincidence, but at 24, that's when I was able to really find my true religion. Before that, I had one instance of just how spirituality can take over. And when I was 16, my mom actually, um, she did die of an overdose of pills. I was the one to find her, and she was taking her very last breath when I found her. There was some kind of compassionate presence that just came in and was able to make space for her to die. And I was only 16, and I knew it wasn't me, but something just came in, and it was really special. It was like a field of compassion, and I I didn't feel sad or upset for her. I just completely wished her well. And um, it was a great honor to be able to offer that to her as a 16-year-old. I wasn't holding on. I just wanted her to be happy. And I think that was, I feel grateful that I was, whatever presence came in, I was able to help me do that. So part two of the spiritual path, just keep going and don't give up. When I started meditating at 24, my first meditation group, I just like took to it 100%, like a duck to water. <laughs> I went nuts and um, started doing 10-day retreats, then three-month retreats, then three-month retreats led to one year. I did five months of retreat. And of course, I like quit my job and... My marriage didn't last. <laughs> it's hard to have an outside life when you're sitting three-month retreats every year. <laughs> so I ended up working at retreat centers and serving retreats and building monasteries and starting centers and setting and teaching, and 20 years went by. It's like that story I read this morning. It's 20 years, all of a sudden, just solid practice. But... You know, interestingly, with all that practice, um, the trauma was just right there. And you know, here it was, I just was going, going, going. And I'd be on a three-month retreat, and six weeks in, I would just... I was sitting there one time six weeks in, and this voice said, well, do you want to see what happened when you got that scar in your chin? And I was like, no. <laughs> and then the curtain just pulled back from the stage, and the whole thing went... For like a total of 15 seconds, and I was like, oh, my God. And then that was that. And it was, it's just like lots of trauma memories. I've seen you working with people on retreats, the same thing happens. Just these things get in the 
silence and the safety of retreat, things get coughed up that our systems just need to almost like reveal to heal. So luckily there were some good teachers and, you know, these trauma revelations, especially really early childhood acts of violence just came, kind of came out. And it was, you know, I was actually amazed. I wasn't upset by it. Now, some people, it's, some of them are way harder memories than I had, but there was just this amazement of the power of the Dharma to self-heal us. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just sitting on a cushion, minding your own business. <laughs> <laughs> It's not like I was looking for psychological stuff. So that's the value of safe environment in many years I've practiced. And, you know, the depression, part of the healing of trauma, these long retreats, the depression symptoms, they have these horrible, hateful voices. And some of you probably know about negative self-talk. And I remember... um, they had this big, they have this big room at IMS, an inside meditation site in the lower walking room, this huge room. And I would just walk back and forth in the room for hours doing walking meditation. And the voices would just like go on and on. They were merciless. And I would just walk and tears would be streaming down my face because they were just so mean. And I would just keep walking and crying and walking and crying and day after day after day. And Eventually, I knew that if I just kept walking, it would get better. And it did. It took a long time, but I just kept walking and crying and walking, and the voices would just, like, whip me. And I just kept walking, just going, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. So it's a just keep going. (laughs) And one retreat I even done. I was so pulled by the voices that I just went out to the woods and I thought about dying of hypothermia. It's, most of the retreats are in the middle of winter. I was sitting by a stream just thinking, you know, I could do that. And this voice, I just got really clear at that moment that I wasn't going to make that choice anymore. When I walked back to the building, I, I realized that I was walking back as a different woman and that I wasn't going to choose death anymore as my ancestry. You know, you just keep going. You just keep going. During one of the breaks from the retreat, I saw an endocrinologist. He was a specialist in depression. And uh, when I walked in, um, he didn't even know my history. He hadn't talked to me. He had taken my blood samples, and he just looked at me, and he said, Well, you have hereditary depression. And I said, Oh, how do you know? And he goes, Well, the levels of the different markers for depression I had in my blood. He said, these are what, yours are higher than my patients on backwards of institutions. And he said, I don't know how you're working or how you have a job or how you're functioning. He was very interested. (laughs) 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 I couldn't believe it at such high levels. So I really, at that moment, I was like, well, if it wasn't for the Dharma, I don't really know how I would be managing this life. So I just kept going. I just kept going. And um, then one day, uh, I was on a self-retreat. It was after about 20 years of practice and 20 years of therapy. And I had kind of given up on the depression thing and healing that. 
I was just sitting there, it was a Sunday morning, and all of a sudden the story of depression just unhooked itself like a caboose leaving a train. It was just the weirdest, slightly embarrassing, <laughs> almost random thing. <laughs> and I just saw that there is no depression, there was no depression, there's no story, there's, it, just was, it was just done. The depression story was just done. And that monster I thought was in the closet, I lo it was like I looked in the closet and it's, it's not there. There's nothing here. And there was a little bit of like, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> it's been 10 years. <laughs> there was nothing there. <laughs> you know, really great insights are always slightly embarrassing. My Adishanti says, like, look at like your pants falling down. <laughs> <laughs> so from that day on my sort of terminal case of depression was just done and the suicidal thoughts didn't come anymore and I could still have low energy and you know some kind sometimes negative thoughts can come in but that constellation that just grabs you of depression it grabs your brain it was just undone and it can't coalesce anymore so I just thought that was such a beautiful example of you know, how the Dharma can just break illusions apart. And I saw, well, well if it can do this with depression, it can do this with self. <laughs> Whatever we call self can be undone in the same way. So at that moment I said, hey, undo self too for me, okay? <laughs> be careful what you wish for. Them. So part three, <laughs> what you are seeking is seeking you. So after that, um, you know, I still had a really strong spiritual seeker. You know, I started at 24, just gung-ho, freedom, enlightenment, or bus. <laughs> freedom junkie. <laughs> but that seeking started to get painful. It was interesting. And I just never would have figured that. It started to get too tight of space, the seeker. And it was hard because I really loved my seeker. I I was really proud of being a kamikaze yogi one time at Upandita, Tumatra Pandita retreat. I sat 17 hours a day on the wooden floor, no cushion. He told us no cushions. So I was like, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and then, like, on a three-month retreat, you know, you sit, you only sleep like three hours a night. So for three months, I was so lit up with the Dharma, just 22 hours a day of practice. I loved it. I just loved it. So, but the Dharma is really beautiful in that it it takes away every illusion. <laughs> Anytime you grab onto something and it's not really true, it'll just start prying it from your hand. <laughs> so the seeker started to get more and more difficult and tight. And it started to just... It, it just kept saying there's more, 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 you know, that more dharma, more retreats, more awakening. <laughs> and it, it just, it started to take all the aliveness out of the dharma, and it really slid away. You know, we're talking about a road that's getting way quieter now, but still, it was noisy. So in my first retreat with Adyashanti in 2003, is really good at busting people's stories. So I went up and talked to him, and he just 
cut the head off my spiritual seeker. <laughs> and he sort of made fun of it and exposed it and then really just brought me back to the present moment is the only thing there is, like all in one fell swoop. And it took me years to digest the, the deep sort of sword of Manjushri wisdom that he gave me that first retreat. But slowly, I'm a slow learner, I started to decrease the kamikaze yogi identification. And I went from three-month three retreats to six weeks, and then I went from six weeks to seven days and maybe five-day retreats. And I, I just started to relax more, and I started to see the value of heart practices and daily life kindness. And that clench, as that clench of... I'm just grabbing hold of Dharma for dear life. Of course, you can understand that I really needed it. That clench started to relax, and then, like, love started to pour in more and more. That which you are seeking is seeking you. And as the love started to pour in, the spiritual seeker just started to wear itself out. Thank goodness. <laughs> it wasn't something I had to get rid of. I didn't have to, like, seek to get rid of the seeker, simply just kind of died out, became more and more undone. It's not that I don't still have a seeker sometimes, but it just wears itself out. And I think that the beauty, again, of the Dharma is anything that's not true will undo itself. Depression will undo itself. Self will undo itself. Seeker will undo itself. You, Dharma, as separate things will undo itself. Because it's not true. The truth so it's so self-reveals. Therein lies the wonder of the Dharma. And when that seeker started to wane, it just the Dharma became much more fun. And um, Adyashanti has this phrase which she challenges people with. Did it ever occur to you that that which you are seeking is seeking you? And I worked with that phrase for a long time, just that sense of, wow, the Dharma is seeking me. <laughs> and he, he often says, like, it comes over from the other side. So I just started to relax when I almost imagine, what if it was seeking me and it's coming over from the other side? Or they say the Dharma is breaking into your body. And it's, it's such a nice way to practice. So the last phase of my practice, part four, just one quiet presence. We have that flurry of stories, trauma, that eight-lane road outside of New York City. And then it slows down, and I just find that there's more and more quiet. And it's not a quiet I have to maintain. It's like it's a birthright that we all have. So I want to invite you to keep finding that quieter and quieter road inside. That's a birthright. And then, you know, when I really need it, it's almost like I can touch down like there's a river and I can just put my hand in the river when I really need it. That quiet is just like a river running through us. And I hope that you can know that more and more through the practice. And the Dharma, this illusion of outer and inner, starts to also break down. 
the Dharma is not outside, it's inside, it's not inside, it's outside, it's both, and in both. You know, there's a wonderful saying from Jesus in the Bible, when the two become the one, when the inner becomes the outer, then ye shall enter the kingdom. So this is this not two that the Zen folks talk about. So, you know, when this starts to take over, there's really nothing to do <laughs> other than a smile and enjoy. You see, Robert knows what I'm talking about. <laughs> it really hit me about a year ago. I was driving down the mountain in Hawaii and looking at another mountain across the way. All of a sudden, I realized that the mountain wasn't out there that I was looking at. It was inside my body. And I was looking at it from inside, and it was out there, and it was inside. And it was very strange experience to know the mountain from the inside. It really showed me that outer and inner is kind of um, an illusion. What was that beetle saying first there is a mountain, and there's a mountain, and there is? <laughs> And there's, you know, you all have experienced this in this, your practice, I'm sure, and just inviting that to take over more and more for each of you. And there's a real relaxed joy. So the more you can relax and enjoy that, it's yours for the taking. That which you are seeking is seeking you. The Dharma is directionless, and it's here now. The the glen and the pine trees and the deep blue Hawaii ocean. It's all right here in our hearts. It's not out there. So you can access it at any time. And the love and the quiet those represent, it's all for us to partake in together. So this is the culmination of my path. And there's more. That's the beauty. There's always more. <laughs> so, you know, here's my story. I started out in a field and I ended up a bulimic young woman and suicidal depression and <laughs> then just field setting or ocean setting and getting quieter and quieter, leaving all the roads behind. So I'd like to close with this poem from T.S. Eliot. You've probably heard it. It's quite famous. We shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning, at the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall, and the children in the apple tree, not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard in the stillness between two waves of the sea. Quick now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything, and all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So no matter what you struggle with, 
all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. Just keep following those quieter roads inside and trusting our Sangha to help you. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.